1998 Olympics in Nagano, Japan was the last time that CBS, the television network, broadcast the Winter Olympics. And of all the coverage that they devoted to the Games that year, one of the most talked about stories was a feature piece by Charles Osgood about the Marathon Monks of Japan. Have you ever heard about the Marathon Monks of Japan? The Marathon Monks of Japan are from the Tendai School of Buddhism, which was, came to Japan in the year 806. And these monks believe that you can obtain spiritual enlightenment in this life through incredible feats of physical endurance, uh, most particular running, to be exact. Um, and the highest achievement of their belief system is for you to obtain and complete the 1,000-year challenge. It takes uh, seven years to complete the 1,000-year challenge. During the first year, actually during years one through five, you must run 30 kilometers a day for 100 days in a row. They start at 1 a.m. in the morning and you wear robes and straw sandals and you run for the 30 kilometers. Then you get up the next night and do the same thing for 100 days in a row. If, if during the first 100 days you decide to drop out, you can and that's acceptable. If you try to quit after the 101st day, then you must, by their uh, rules, uh, commit suicide by hanging yourself with your robe ties. Uh, during the fifth year, uh, well, in the middle of your 100 days of running, each marathon runner, a marathon monk, completes a nine-day stretch of fasting from food, water, and sleep of any kind. Then in the sixth year, you run not 30 kilometers uh, for 100 days. You run 60 kilometers a day for 100 days in a row. Then during year seven, you run 84 kilometers a day for 100 days followed by 30 kilometers a day for 100 days. In total, these monks run 27,000 miles. Uh, would it surprise you to know that only 45 men have actually completed this task since 1585? It's difficult. It's like trying to outdo the Harrisons on the number of children they're going to have. All of these men have completed these uh, uh, running events in an effort to obtain spiritual enlightenment. These marathon monks provide an example, I think, of the way that human beings, by default, approach spirituality. Spirituality is a job to be completed. It's a standing to be earned. It's an assignment to be fulfilled. If you want to lose weight, you've got to discipline yourself to exercise and, and watch what you eat. If you want to get a college degree, you have to go work hard. You have to study. If you want a beautiful lawn, you have to discipline yourself to weed and fertilize and mow and, and seed and care for it. And if you want to be a spiritual person, you have to labor at it. The default setting of the human heart is that religion is a matter of self-empowered labor. That's a tendency, whether you realize it or not, that you battle every single day. This is why self-empowered, self-imposed religion is one of the most prominent topics in the New Testament. And our sad history is that the church of Jesus Christ often sings and talks about the grace of God but we don't depend on the grace of God. 
Which is why Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 are so important for us as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like you, if you would, please, to take your Bibles and turn with me back to that passage that we read a few moments ago in the book of Ephesians, chapter 2. I'd like you to turn with me to Ephesians, chapter 2. While you're turning there in your Bibles, there's a a cream or ivory note sheet in your Bible, if you want to, in your bulletin, excuse me. If you want to take that out, uh, you can use that this morning. Uh, We're working our way through the book of Ephesians, and we have been spending the last three weeks on this third major paragraph in the book of Ephesians. Uh, So far, two themes have dominated. One, we have seen the woeful condition of human beings. And in contrast to our woeful condition, there is the great grace and mercy of God. Those two things, those two things that we don't normally put together, but here in Ephesians 2, we think about them, our unlovable state before God and God's great love, His great mercy. You could summarize Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, I think, in some, this sentence from Tim Keller who said, you're more sinful than you ever dared believed. You're more loved than you ever dared hope. That's the message of the gospel. More sinful than you ever dared believe. More loved than you ever dared hope. In verse 5, which we read again a few minutes ago, Paul wrote those lines, It is by grace you have been saved. And then in verses 8 through 10, uh, which many of you have memorized, Paul expands on those eight words in an effort to combat two common errors that people have when they think about religion and faith. And these, these errors center on the role of good works. What purpose do good works serve? Or what motivates good works? When and how should they appear in the life of someone who claims to be a follower of Christ? Now, what role do good works play in salvation? Again, the default role, or the default, excuse me, default position of most people is that it's good works that make you a good person. If you want to be good, then you have to do good. Uh, I... Someone once suggested to me uh, that Frank Sinatra got it, uh, uh, got it wrong. See, most people think you have to do good in order to be good. And he's saying, do, be, do, be, do. The Bible actually is the opposite. We, you be good and then do good. Sinatra should have saying, be, do, be, do, be, do, be. The Bible says that the be good comes before the do good. I want you to see that in the text this morning, and I want to try and summarize these two verses in two very simple statements, two simple statements that are designed to unpack this text for you. Um, And here's the first one. Good works do not produce salvation. Good works do not produce salvation. This is something that many of you already know, and it's very easy to see in the text. In fact, it's explicit in what Paul writes here. He begins in verse 8, and he says, It is by grace you have been saved. Grace is the objective means of our salvation. Paul is speaking here about the unmerited kindness of God in sending us His Son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. He's our Deliverer. Jesus is the one who, by His death, paid the penalty for our sins to deliver us from God's wrath. That's grace. The text says that we're saved by grace through faith. That is, here's the subjective means of salvation. 
my experience of the saving work of Jesus Christ comes by faith. That is, I experience God's kindness, I experience His mercy, I experience His grace as I turn to Him in reliant trust. From my perspective, salvation occurs when I trust in, when I turn to Jesus Christ by faith. Every person here who is this morning, who is a Christian, who has been brought out of darkness into light, who has been uh, uh, made alive with Christ, been turned from being a child of wrath to a child of God, this, this has come to you, channeled, God's grace channeled to you by your reliant faith on Him, your reliant trust. You have turned from whatever you thought was making you happy, whatever you thought was satisfying you, whatever you thought was giving you standing before God, you have turned to Christ by faith. Good works don't produce salvation. Now, Charles Spurgeon preached a number of sermons on this this text, as you can imagine, and he made a couple of observations that I think are very helpful. He said, this truth in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is a truth that you can see all the way through the pages of the Bible. If you read the Bible clearly, you can see over and over again, it says, first of all, it's impossible to be saved by good works. It's impossible to be saved by good works. Just think of the first two or three pages of the Bible, Adam himself, the first man God made. In Genesis 2, we have God creating this perfect environment, the Garden of Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, he put a perfect man who was completely innocent. He had a perfect relationship with God. He had a perfect relationship with his wife. He had everything that he could possibly ever need there in that garden. And there was one commandment for him to follow. Don't eat from that tree. And he disobeyed, he failed, and the consequences have been catastrophic. And and now today, in this life in which things are so different than the way they were in the Garden of Eden, it's ludicrous to think that you will be able to meet God's standards. We're not perfect. We're not innocent. We don't live in a perfect environment. We're cut off from God and us. And between God and us, there are a host of commands that we have failed to obey. In 2010, the National Institutes of Health, uh, through the National Cancer Institute, gave away $5.1 billion for cancer research. The United States government used $5.1 billion of tax money to fund cancer research. I'm, I'm glad they did. It's good work. Uh, 20, uh, $281 million for lung cancer research. $300 million for prostate cancer research, $63 million, uh, excuse me, $630 million for breast cancer research, and the list goes on and on and on and on. And if you wanted to, you could go online and find all the places where the money was uh, sent, uh, all the laboratories, all the PhDs, all the equipment that was bought with this money to do cancer research. It's, it's good, and, and I hope that the research that they do produces a cure more and more we're finding ways to fight this insidious disease of cancer. And, and I hope that uh, this money that's invested will, will, will bring us a solution. I do not expect a cure for cancer to come from the slums of San Jose, Costa Rica. I, I learned a little bit about San Jose, Costa Rica not too long ago. San Jose is the, the capital city of Costa Rica. And the outward slums of San Jose are, uh, the out, the suburbs of the city are filled with deeply embedded poverty. 
Many of the people who live in those slums are Nicaraguan refugees in Costa Rica illegally. They live in shacks that they build from scrap metal that they can find. And, and they have no running water and they have no uh, electricity unless they pirate it from somebody. And, and uh, education and medical care are, are nil and drugs and, and abuse are rampant in those slums. I, I don't expect the cure to cancer to be discovered in the slums of San Jose, Costa Rica. If Adam could not fulfill God's commands in the follow his rules in the pristine, uh, uh, well-provided-for environment of the Garden of Eden, you and I who are spiritual slum dwellers have no chance of doing it. You have a greater possibility of producing a cancer cure from the slums of San Jose than you do from producing in your life enough good works, enough goodness to satisfy God. It's impossible. It is impossible to be saved by works. Charles Spurgeon believes something else relevant to this discussion that I think is important here. He observed that salvation by works eliminates the cross. Salvation by works eliminates the need for the cross. If you can, through your own effort, if it's just a question of satisfying God through your effort, then why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Why did He come? It's not necessary. If if all you need to do is be good, is to try hard to, to do some good things to meet God's standards, why His Son? Why the blood? Why His death? Good works do not produce salvation. But you knew that, didn't you? Um, I imagine if most of you were here this morning, if I, if I gave you a, a theology test and one of the questions was, uh, true or false, good works produce salvation. Most of you could circle that F without a doubt, with confidence. In fact, if commandos broke into your room in the middle of the night and shone a flashlight on in your eyes and, and the commando said to you, can I be good enough to go to heaven? Most of you without thought could say, no, you can't. If that happens, let me know. I'd be really interested. You know that. We, we talk about this all the time. Some of you, again, have Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 memorized, but inexorably, inevitably, this tendency to think that our standing before God is determined by our goodness sneaks in. It's, it's insidious. Uh, we just fall into, because it's the default setting of the human heart, this notion that I can be good enough. I can satisfy God enough. In fact, I want to show you this morning three ways that that tendency might sneak into you. This self-empowered religion can infect you. And the first two ways I want to mention, I'm actually going to draw from a story, again, another well-known story. In fact, it's one of the stories that Jesus told and Pastor Scott read it last week. It's one of the most famous stories in all the Bible. Keep your fingers in Ephesians 2 and turn with me over to Luke chapter 15. Luke chapter 15 is the story of the prodigal son. The story is called the story of the prodigal son, but it actually should be called the parable of the prodigal sons. This is a story about a father with two sons, and in the story the father had to go and rescue both of them. Now, we usually think about the first son, about the youngest son who left his father's home with his inheritance, and he found pleasure and joy away from the home. 
Uh, but then he, co- he comes back home, in, and notice what happens. The son who, in the, uh, well, both sons start at the beginning of the story inside the house. Right? One of them leaves and goes off and finds his way, his own pleasure, his own joy. I don't need my dad. I don't want my dad. I'm going to live life my own way. What happens? He comes home. And on his way home, his dad runs out to meet him and welcomes him and, and brings him inside the house. At the end of the story, it's the older brother who then goes outside the house. The older brother who's outside and doesn't want what the father has. And the father goes out to rescue him. The end of the story, the outside brother has become the inside brother, and the inside brother has become the outside brother, and the father has gone outside the house to plead with them both. Actually, it might be that older son that is the real focus of this story. We usually think about the wonderful story of repentance of the younger son, and and it's beautiful, but I wonder if it's that older son that Jesus is thinking about in particular. I think that because of of how the stories are introduced in Luke 15. Look what it says in Luke 15.1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I want to direct your attention to how the uh, older brother and the father talk with one another. You can actually see a couple tests here to see whether or not you are functioning as a works-based religion person. Here's the first one. Number one, you can tell if you assume a superior posture toward others you assume a superior posture toward others. Um, look, at, look at how he evaluates his brother and how he evaluates himself. Verse 29, the father... Well, we'll start reading in verse 28. The older brother became angry and refused to go into the house. He's the outside brother now. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and you never and never disobeyed your orders. But in contrast, verse 31, uh, verse, uh, excuse me, 30, this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes. Notice the focus of this man is on his righteousness in comparison to his younger brother's unrighteousness. I'm a better person. I'm a more worthy person. If you line us up by our record, I'm the first, I'm the champion righteous boy in the family. And I can label and I can identify everybody and where they line up in comparison to me because I am the best. People infused with grace don't think in those terms of superiority. Those focused on performance can't help but label people. They can't help but judge people. They, they talk about those kind of people. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels takes place in Luke chapter 7. We won't look at it. Let me review the facts. It's a story many of you know. Jesus was at a home of a Pharisee and he was inside the house and uh, they were eating dinner and a, and a prostitute came in to the, the uh, banquet hall and she was uh, um, overwhelmed with the grace that Jesus Christ offered and she washed Jesus' face feet. She um, uh, wiped them with her, she uh, uh, washed them with her tears and she dried his feet with her hair. The Pharisee was sitting there, said to himself, if Jesus knew what type of woman was touching him, he would not let her touch him. 
If, if he were really a prophet, he, he would know what sort of woman that is and he wouldn't let her touch him because she's one of those kind of people. You can eat with me because I'm a Pharisee. It's good. But you don't want those kind of people touching you. And, and what we see in the story as Jesus confronts this Pharisee about his attitude he, is that the difference between the Pharisee and the prostitute is not who merits more, great, uh, more before God, not who is more righteous before God. The difference between them is that one of them knew they needed God's grace and one of them did not. That's really the difference between the Pharisee and the prostitute. Is that what separates you from prostitutes in Lancaster County? That, that they may know they need God's grace, but you, you don't? How do you think about the people that you, that you see at, at Turkey Hill when they pull in uh, while you're getting gas and their clothes and their language and their demeanor do not exactly conform to our understanding of Sunday best? What do you think about when, when you see those protesters that are living in uh, 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 those tent cities on Wall Street? What, what do you think about them? Get a job. Stop complaining. Pay your way like I have. Maybe you don't think that when you see the protesters. Maybe you think about that when you see the bankers that they're protesting. You stole my money. Regardless, when you set yourself up as before God as superior to someone else, you are operating in the world of works, not in the world of grace. Would you notice something else though from the, the elder brother here? He, he shows another way that works have encroached into his thinking. Works have encroached into your thinking when you resent the grace that's given others. When you resent the grace that's given others. Look at verse 29. It, it says, again, he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. God, uh, he, he says to his father, It's not fair. I haven't even gotten a goat and he got the fattened calf. You should not be so kind to him because I deserve it more than he does. He's, he's raging over this. Some people say to God, God, you, you owe me. If you meet someone who is bitter toward God because of the suffering that they've endured or they're raging with envy over what someone else has, you can bet that beneath that rage, beneath that envy, that resentment, works, not grace, is controlling that person's heart. Uh, when people are overwhelmed with their suffering because they think that God is not treating them fairly, they are operating before God on this works. God, I, I've been a good person. I, I have done what's, I've taught Sunday school. I, I've gone to a prayer meeting. I've been, I've been upright in my neighborhood. I don't swear. I don't watch R-rated movies. And you should, this should not be happening to me, God. These things should not be happening to me. That resentment comes from that works orientation in, in your heart. I'll mention briefly just one, one more sign here that works, not grace, are dominating in your life. You can see it when you hesitate to confess your sin. When you hesitate to confess your sin. Matt Chandler says this is the litmus test of whether or not you understand the gospel, whether you really understand grace how do you respond when you fail? 
If you find yourself swirling in guilt and shame and regret that paralyzes you and you refuse to ask God for forgiveness, you are operating according to works and not grace. Some of you have rituals that you go through. You sin in some significant way, so you, you, you wait. Well, I'll do some nice things and then God will be more inclined to listen to me when I confess. Or I'll be good for a few days and then my spiritual life will be able to get back on track. You refuse to turn to Christ until you have done enough good deeds by your own standards to make up for your, to make up for your failure. Hebrews 4.16 says, Let us come boldly to the throne of grace so that we may receive grace and mercy to help in a time of need. When do you need God's grace and mercy? In the midst of your failure. It's what Martin Luther, I said, I think, meant when he, he advised his congregation, sin boldly, he said. Now, you don't run into sin. It, 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 it's foolish. But your understanding of the depth of the grace of God enables you to run out of sin and run to Christ. You have got to be aware of how this damnable, self-empowered religion is always seeking an inroad into your life. Good works don't produce salvation. Here's the second corrective in the text in Ephesians chapter 2 that Paul is going to set for us. The second corrective is this. Good works follow salvation. Good works do not produce salvation, but good works follow salvation. The grace comes first. Then on the basis of that grace, we need a new life. Um, look with me here at the words and the language that Paul uses. He says in verse 10, we are God's workmanship. This is a, a word that, that is the finished product of a craftsman. We're His workmanship. We're His workmanship created. And that word should, should send, it could send your Bible, your mind running through the Bible. Created. In Genesis 1, God calls the world into existence by the word of His power and God has, by the word of His gospel, called you to Himself. In John 1, it says that God created, everything that has been created has been made by the Son. Again, we see the work of Jesus Christ. In Revelation 21 and 22, it tells us that God is going to make again a new heaven and a new earth, this creative work. Do you know that the work that God has done in your life, the beginning of the, the gospel work He's done in you, He is, is the down payment for the work of new creation He's going to do at the end of the age? Your body's not ready for that. It will need some transformation. It will need some work. But God is already at work in your heart to prepare you for that work of new creation He's going to do at the end of time. We're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. That word good means beneficial, joy-producing, need-meeting, happy, life-giving works. And they're works that have been prepared in advance. Just like our salvation. Hebrews, uh, Ephesians 1 God, before the foundation of the world, has uh, chose us to be in His Son. And He also, in advance, prepared good works for us to do. Paul is speaking of, of the possibility, the new life that is for those who are His. Formerly, your life was marked by death and disobedience, and now it's joy-producing. It's health-instilling life. 
Everybody in this room, I'm, I'm sure, at some point in time, has thought to themselves, I really need a shower. Thought that of yourself? Um, maybe after a game, or after a, a hard day of, of yard work, or a partic- particularly difficult day in the shop, you have a lot of mess going on here. So, uh, you, you can smell the mess, you can see the mess, you need a shower. Have you ever been in an elevator with somebody like that? Uh, people for whom bathing is not a regular habit. Uh, they, they have a certain appearance. They have a different aroma about them. There are a number of reasons why somebody could be in that condition. And James 2 tells us it's a gospel issue as to how you respond to them. That Jesus Christ uh, uh, transforms your mind and your heart so that what you think about that person is different when they step on the elevator. I know that's true, but I want to think for just a minute about how that person changes the environment they're in. Right? There you are, this confined space. Your eyes start to water. You back up a little bit in the elevator and, and, and you see how long you can hold your breath. You lean back. Then when they get off the elevator, it doesn't matter what floor you're, they're on, you get off too because you know that that small room is going to have that aroma about it when, when they go. Now imagine uh, that you could take that man or that woman and, and oversee their cleansing. That you, you could make sure that they got a shower. That, that you gave them soap and a razor and shampoo and a washcloth and a fluffy towel. And you take their old clothes and you burn them. And you give them new clothes. And, and when you're finished, you, you give them deodorant and, and some cologne. And, and now how do they look and smell? What, 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 what do you think when you're near them? Occasionally, um, some, most often in the hospital, I, I get on the elevator early in the morning. There I stand. And most people have, have just gotten ready for the day. They look the best they're going to all day in those few moments uh, when they, they first leave their house. Their, their clothes are pressed. Their cologne or their perfume is the freshest. They, they look good. And what does that person's presence in the elevator do? Maybe they, they fill it with, with a sweet scent. It's just delightful. You, you see some, some uh, a, a man there, some executive on his way to work, and he's standing there in the elevator, and he's ready for the day, and his shirt is pressed, and he's standing tall. And, and, and it, does, it makes you stand up a little bit taller, too. This guy's ready for work. This woman got up, she put her face on, hopefully not in the car, but she put her face on, and, and she's ready. Here she is. She looks good. That person's ready to face the day, ready for what's going to happen. And, and, and you can be too. It, it's buoyant, isn't it, when, when you're in those circumstances? The, the Bible tells us that spiritually you stank. But God's grace has cleansed you. He has cleaned you up. In fact, Titus uses that image. He saved us, Titus says, by washing with the water of the Word. And now you're fresh and you're clean and you smell like heaven. And your presence is, as God's workmanship in the world is to bring joy and life and health. In what ways is your aroma evident to the people around you? you thought about your spiritual scent? For many of you, your, your life manifests this change in, in multiple ways. You're walking in, in new life. 
And Paul has brought this discussion to the end, and it's a fitting conclusion to this. All the way through chapter 2 thus far, he's been speaking about our woeful condition and how we in this world just produce stench and death and darkness. God's grace has cleaned us up. And, and now we enter the world with a sweet aroma, that sniff of heaven. Roy Hattersley is, is a well-known atheist in Great Britain. He's a commentator. And several years ago, uh, he was watching the coverage, or actually on site, watching some of the things that were happening in uh, New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina in 2005. And he was impressed to see members of the Salvation Army there working and, and the things that they were, were doing. Uh, they, they were leading, in fact, other faith-based organizations in, in the work there. And this is what uh, Roy Hattersley wrote, this atheist. He said, It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian. But notable by their absence from the relief work in New Orleans were teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations. The sort of people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. Christians are the people most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Civilized people... Now, we'll see what he says here. Civilized people do not believe that drug addiction and male prostitution offend against divine ordinance. I happen to think so. He doesn't. He's wrong. Look what he says. But those who do think that these things are uh, offend against divine ordinance are the men and women most... uh, people like you and I, are the men and women most willing to change the fetid bandages, replace the sodden sleeping bags, and probably most difficult of all, argue without a trace of impatience that the time has come for some serious medical treatment. The only possible conclusion is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make Christians morally superior to atheists like me. I appreciate his observation. I appreciate his commendation. But what I want Roy Hattersley to understand, what we celebrate when we partake of the Lord's Supper, is not that we're morally superior. Not that we're morally superior to atheists like Roy Hattersley, but that we are people who have been shown love, who have been shown grace by God, the God who is rich in mercy. And every work that we do is merely the overflow of His great kindness which has already filled us. Let's pray, shall we? Father, our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed as we we, uh, are before you today. And and I recognize, I see around the room men and women whose uh, lives have been changed by the grace of God and who are indeed involved in fulfilling the works that you have planned for them in advance. Uh, Men and women who who, uh, faithfully serve uh, in this building in multiple ways throughout the week, through caring for children and, and um, helping to oversee the, how we care for our outreach partners and, and managing the, the church's money and financial issues. Men and women who think very consciously about their neighborhoods and their presence there. Men and women who think about uh, uh, life outside of the United States and people around the world who are in need of the, 
the grace of God and in need of, of kindness. Thank you, Father, for the overflow of grace that comes. You who are rich in mercy. Father, I pray um, we, we confess our dependence upon you because we, we slip so often and so much into this uh, works righteousness and, and how we think of other people. And I ask that you would forgive us and that you would transform us. Stun us, astound us, overwhelm us again with the greatness of your mercy, your kindness, your love in Jesus Christ our Savior. That we might be carried forward in life with great buoyancy, with fullness, with satisfaction in Christ that overflows to the people around us. Open our eyes that we might see these works that you have prepared in advance for us to do and may we do them as a testimony of the fact that we have been washed and cleaned by your grace through faith. Father, there's perhaps, again, people who are a a part of our congregation this morning who are here and who are not followers of Jesus Christ that have not come to the point of turning to him by faith. And I, I pray that you would open their eyes so that they might see clearly the glory of Christ in the gospel, that they might turn and believe and find great joy in the forgiveness of sins and in life eternal. Uh, we want to honor your son. We want to honor his, his, what he has done for us. Help us to do it well as we partake of the Lord's Supper today. It's in Christ's name we ask these things. Amen.